The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. How do you decide the things that you are going to invest in? So I'm not thinking investments like properties or stocks. I'm thinking, how do you decide what people you're going to invest in? What things are you going to invest in with your time and with your money? Now, each of us are limited by our resources. We all have limited time. We all have 168 hours in a week. We learned over and over again in Ecclesiastes, the end is coming. It's all vaporous. We are limited by our time. We're limited by our money. We all have a limited amount of resources. So how do you decide what is worthy to invest in? We talk a lot about wanting to be generous, to love others, to be hospitable. I looked this past week. There's 7.9 billion people in the world. We, I was talk, Trevor and I were talking with Anand the other day about how many people are in India. And he was like, it's like 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 billion So a fifth of the population is in India. And then how well do we even know the people in our own neighborhood to care about them? There are so many people, so many things, so many places that are worthy of our investment. How much more so just even our workplace, our neighborhoods. And it's hard enough to even know those people super well to care for them. I looked up this past week, categories of charitable giving, got on a few random websites, just chose one of them. This one website had 11 categories of charitable giving, animals, arts and humanities, community, education, environment, health, human rights, human services, international, I guess that's just anything outside the U.S., I don't know, research and public policy, and religion. Now, the one that the Markhams I know will not be giving to, I feel pretty confident, I'm thinking about Sarah McLaughlin's classic commercials of animals and dogs and, and cats. I'm just, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to offend some people here tonight. I'm just not a dog person, not a cat person. That's probably not the place we're going to invest our, you know, time and efforts because for whatever reason, the Lord has just not given me uh, that passion. He's given the rest of my family that passion, but just not me. I had a bad experience with having a dog growing up. So I'm still wounded from it. Now, everyone needs money. Sarah McLaughlin's asking for money for for animals. We have toy drives. We have food banks. We have childhood cancer research. I was on YouTube like four or five months ago, and they they were just getting me. With the St. Jude commercial of childhood cancer research, I was just like in tears sitting in the Greer Library supposed to, I don't know if I was sermon prepping or teaching prepping or whatever I was doing, but I was watching some video to help me and just ended up watching this five-minute St. Jude uh, commercial about raising money for childhood cancer research. It's super obviously important and things we want to care about. The library wants us to maybe donate or the local theater. There's homeless population. There's Girl Scouts, and I think everyone loves investing in the Girl Scouts when they give us a small token of their appreciation in return when we give them money and they give us cookies. Uh, We all love maybe investing in the Girl Scouts. There's building campaigns, there's church budgets, there's friends, there's family, there's missionaries. There's so many things to invest in. 
So let's take a look at Acts chapter 3 and look at kind of Peter and John and their interaction with this beggar. Verses 1 through 3, we kind of see the initiation of their interaction. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So Peter and John, two key disciples and apostles from the start of Jesus' ministry, they are laying the foundation of the church. So it's kind of a good question. What do they invest in? What do they spend their time on? So they're going up to the temple to pray. There were three key times of prayer. Morning, the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., and then sunset, kind of in the evening. In chapter 2, verse 46, one of the verses from Trevor's uh, passage last week, we're told that the disciples are attending the temple together day by day. And somewhat, this might be hard for us to understand. They're, they're following Christ now. Why are they continuing to, to go to the temple? Well, these are Jews who have become followers of Christ and followers of Christ who still consider themselves part of the remnant of Israel. They've continued to regard the temple as their sanctuary and the law as their law. They sought to express new faith in old categories, so they're going to the temple, the historic place of God's presence, to pray. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So we have this lame man, but this man is not lame like people may think I am lame. When it comes to our staff, I am by far the lamest person on our church staff. I am routinely, routine, routinely missing jokes or cultural references. Nick smiling at Trevor, and they, they all know that I'm just, I'm just lame and I miss things. I don't, I don't get things. Trevor recently, we were recording a podcast he said something about Rickroll on the podcast. I'm hoping that at least maybe like 10 of you out there have no idea what Rickroll is or a quarter of you. I had no idea. I was just like, ha, ha, ha. I don't know what you're talking about. Let's continue on with whatever we're talking about in the podcast. Um, I had no idea what it means. You guys can go look it up. for It's Rick Ansley singing or Ansley. I don't know how you can say his name. Singing a classic famous song. I don't know. Rickroll. But I, I, I am lame. But this man is literally crippled ever since he was in his mother's womb. This man could not walk or move. He had to be carried anywhere. Chapter 4, verse 22, we're still going to be talking about this same man. And it says that he had been in this state for more than 40 years. So he's more than 40 years old. He's been crippled. He's hopeless. He's totally reliant on others. And so they, he's laid at the temple gate to make a small living. He asks for alms, for money or goods from those going into the temple. And this is literally what he does every day. Now in Judaism, almsgiving was a meritorious act. So those going into the temple could gain merit by giving this man a coin. So the lame beggar wisely chose this location with the hope that people would feel compelled to give as they go to worship, kind of a little guilt factor there you can give to me by sitting, you know, when I'm sitting right here before you go and worship God. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So he sees Peter and John, they're about to go in the temple, he asks for these coins or goods, something from them, 
And one interesting question is, why does this happen on this day? Why does this story, these 10 verses, happen on this day? Why didn't it happen the day before, five years ago? Why does it happen this day and not a few years from that time? He's been sitting there for a long time. This seems like just another run-of-the-mill day, Peter and John going up to pray like they've been doing. But why does this happen? I think we see it's an act of the Spirit. The Spirit that we came and saw rain down in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see God's providence in creating this situation for this day. Verses 4 through 6, we're going to see the interaction. So we saw uh, the initiation. They're starting to talk and interact. And then we're going to get the the kind of full interaction, verses 4 through 6. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So Peter and John, they looked at the man, they instruct the lame man to look at them. And immediately the man stares them down, assuming he's about to get some kind of help. He's about to get some alms. And then verse 5 is just loaded with irony. He thinks he's about to receive what he needs, some kind of money to continue his living. But he doesn't actually receive what he thinks he's going to receive. He actually gets what he needs more than anything else. And then verse 6 is, the, is really a key verse. Peter does not have any money to give at this time. And what Peter does actually have is way more valuable, and hence the irony. He has way more than coins to give to this man. Peter proclaims, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter is invoking the power and presence of Jesus, uniquely equipped through the work of the Spirit, And this is not just some far-off mystical form of Jesus and spirituality. He is invoking the living, breathing being of Jesus. The one who is from Nazareth. The one who is raised from the dead, who is alive and has ascended. And he says, get up and walk. Verses 7 and 8, we see the results of this interaction. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So in verse 7, Peter grabbed his hand and raised him up. And instantly the man was healed and made strong. And then verse 8, the man leaps up. What a picture. This man has been crippled for 40 years, and he leaps up. You can just imagine a, a child excited for a snack or excited for whatever they're going to do, and they're told by their parents they can go do it, and they leap up, and they're so excited. And he walks. He's excited about the transformation. Just imagine having not walked in four decades, your entire life, and now you can walk. And it's like, we can't even imagine this. The man goes into the temple with Peter and John, and what was he doing? He's walking, he's leaping, and he's praising God. His change is very obvious to those 
around him. And all of this is mind-blowing. A lame man from birth can now walk because of Peter's declaration to get up and walk in the name of Jesus. Now, how great is Jesus? I pray we would just stop and just worship him because of what we read here in Acts chapter 3. This is the whole point. How great is Jesus? But a kind of a big question that stems from these verses is can we emulate this? Can we do similarly? Now, large movements in the Christian world are out there that try to make this kind of work normative in the life of the believer and in the church. And many even do more than want it to be normative, but almost want to require it for a person to be considered a believer. Might say, you don't have enough faith if you can't heal or fix an issue or or whatever the thing is. Or even worse, if you're disabled and you receive no healing, you are to blame. You don't have enough faith. You're sinful. Think about the disciples asking Jesus at the beginning of John 9 when they saw a blind man, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals the man. Sin does have consequences, but there's no way to know exactly why things happen the way they do this side of eternity. To us as individuals, to us corporately. We would very much hold that miracles happen today. The fact that any of us in here today have saving faith in the Lord Jesus is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But there's also unique work that was done in this time and in this place. Chapter 2, verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The apostles have a unique power and ability based on their role and proximity to Jesus. As much as people may want there to be apostles today in a similar vein, there just are not. None of our pastors, none of us quite have the gifts of the apostle Peter or John or Paul. Yes, the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us, the same Spirit that we saw come and rain down in chapter 2. But the Spirit also works in different ways, at different times, in different groups of people, and especially with these first followers of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is done to magnify Jesus. There seems to be a sort of clustering effect of the miracles done in the early church as affirmation of the Spirit's new work, of the Spirit's coming and of Christ ascending. We see this in the scripture and we even see that in places of new work around the world, the Spirit works in different ways at different times. When, when we see new believers or new churches planted where they've never been before, the Spirit works in order to affirm what is true and good and right. And God can still work in this way today, but it doesn't seem to be normative. And as we think about this passage, it's helpful to talk about passages in the scripture that are prescriptive or descriptive. Prescriptive being what we should do. There's plenty of passages out there telling us exactly what we should do that are prescriptions for us to obey. There's also descriptive passages telling us what happened. And a lot of passages are going to have a mix of both. Things we can do based on the text 
but also things to just know. And I think we're going to see and taste that with our, with our verses tonight. We know that, I feel pretty confident, that it's not prescriptive any time that you're asked for money from anybody, whether it's from somebody in this room or somebody on the side of the road, somebody you don't know. If, if you were asked for money to say, I don't have money, but I have Jesus, so take him, be healed, you'll have money, you'll get food, you won't be poor, you won't be homeless, you won't be sick, whatever the thing is. I think this is descriptive of what took place in this situation. But it is prescriptive to make Jesus known, to see Jesus work. The point of all of this is to make Jesus known. So can we emulate this? Can we do similarly? We pray for healing. We ask for the Lord to heal. Our prayers may be the means by which God uses to set in motion healing. Whether it's quick, immediate, whether it's over time. God is capable. So let's believe and ask. Let's believe some more and ask some more. If he answers, praise God. If he does not, praise God. We may be the godliest, most spirit-filled person that exists in 2022 and not be able to just declare healing upon a person. Clearly, no one has been capable to just pray away all pain or evil or hardship or strife or poverty or health issues. Justin Greer, just probably within a mile radius of, of this gym, just in our neighborhoods, much less our state, our country, our world. So we may not be able to heal. Why? It might not be God's will for the moment of time. How often do we hear of incredible stories of spiritual growth during times of trial, whether those trials are physical, emotional, spiritual, mental? The Lord may be growing us. We also don't necessarily have power to just declare what we want and see it come to be. Even if we think it would be the most honoring thing to the Lord, God is providential, not us. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is Moses preaching his final sermon, essentially, to a people who have just wandered around for 40 years. Why have we been wandering? Certain secret things belong to the Lord, and certain revealed things belong to his children. So this passage is not necessarily prescriptive. Yes, we can pray for healing. We can meet needs. We want to offer Christ to broken people. But this passage is ultimately all about Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Verses 9 and 10, we see the reaction of the crowds. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So everyone witnesses and sees the change in this man. Not only because he's physically walking, but because he's also praising God which we saw in verses 8 and 9. The crowd recognizes him as the lame man who sat at the gate asking for money day after day, month after month, year after year. Just think about all the questions that are coming to their minds. A person they saw every day laying on the ground, unable to walk or work, asking for money, who could do nothing else. Why has this happened? 
That man is now praising God. The crowds are filled with wonder and amazement. Think about for us, just think about, you know, that person you knew from childhood who was always picked last for the kickball team, always the first person out in dodgeball, you know, just tripping over their feet. Maybe that's some of us in this, in this room. Imagine that you turned on Ninja Warrior. I don't even know if that's still a thing. That was a thing a few years ago. I'm, uh, I'm, I don't keep it. It's still a thing. All right. Imagine you turn on Ninja Warrior. They're doing crazy obstacles. This, this kid you knew growing up who was just couldn't do anything physical. And now they're doing crazy obstacles, jumping, running, handling crazy obstacles with ease in incredible shape. They're winning the competition. You would just be totally dumbfounded. And you would ask, what happened? And presumably they had 10, 15, 20 years to exercise, to eat right, to do whatever they needed to do. But here we're asking, what happened? In the work of the early church, action, certain things that take place, always then lead to an explanation. They tell about what God is doing. There is both deed and word. And this is why you'll need to be here with us next week. We'll get more of an explanation of what just happened. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 is just going to be filled with remembering these 10 verses. But for tonight, our key for everything that we've read tonight is that the Spirit exalts Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I want to read a few verses into our passage for next week, verses 11 through 13. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of of Pilate when he had decided to release him. All of this is going to be about Christ. All of this is about the Son. The work of the Holy Spirit exalts the Son. The Spirit, Spirit, just the word, is not used one time in chapter 3. After playing such an integral role in chapter 2, coming down, tongues of fire, just magnificent things happening, But he plays such a vital role in chapter 3. The Spirit is working, moving, healing, changing, all for the sake of Jesus. A couple passages from John should be on the screen. John 15, verse 26, Jesus is speaking. But when the Helper comes, when the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus. John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. Spirit bears witness to and glorifies Jesus. Our first inclination with this passage may be what I spent just spent a couple minutes on just a few minutes ago is how do we do this? Do we need to be healing people right now, right here? How do I ensure I can make this happen? And in many ways, that's, a, that's very much a self-focused, a man-centered focus. But Luke records this passage, I think, so that we know more of Jesus. We taste more of Jesus. The Spirit has ordained 
that these 10 verses are in Acts chapter 3 so that we know more of Jesus. He wants our reaction. Luke wants our reaction. And the Spirit through Luke wants our reaction to be, praise God for how awesome and amazing He is. And Christ is amazing. If you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to get in the Scriptures. Read about Him. Spend time getting to know Jesus. He is the Savior of all the world. And He can be your Savior as well. So all of this is about Jesus. And as we think about a few points of of application, I want to read John 15, verse 27. Or I'm not, not going to read it, but just summarize it. It comes right after uh, verse 26 that we just read. Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to bear witness like the Spirit because they have been with him from the beginning. So the Spirit bears witness and the disciples bear witness. So our first point of application is really our vision statement. Make Jesus known. Bear witness to Jesus. We want to see Jesus proclaimed and seen and tasted everywhere we go. Let it be known that we love Jesus. Is it obvious that your life has been changed by Jesus? Now, not necessarily through an overzealous extrovertedness that you have to have, but through your speech, through your actions, through your character, through what you like to talk about. Has your life actually been changed by the Lord Jesus and the work of the Spirit in your heart? The lame man was changed by the living God. And then that was made clear to the people around him. They had wonder and amazement. So I think about the question, would your life look any different if you didn't love Jesus? If you didn't kind of carry the name of Christ, would your life look different or would it look the same? Now, a lot of our lives have to do with motivations. Maybe you would still have the same job, still like the same sports, still watch some of the same TV shows. But a lot of our life should be different because of us following Christ. We should radiate Jesus in a sense. So I hope and I pray that our lives look different because we follow Jesus. And I hope that through those lives, in deed and in word, we're making Jesus known. And that comes to number two. Word and deed are both vital to making Jesus known. Word and deed are both vital to making Jesus known. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. We want the word to have an impact on our lives and lead to us doing. Kind of my summary of these kind of Acts 2 and Acts 3 Chapter 2, Peter words. He, he preaches for a lot of it. Then we start to see some deeds at the end of chapter 2 with how the church functions. And then Peter and John deed at the beginning of chapter 3. And then next week and then the weeks after, we're going to see more words, more preaching, more proclamation of who Jesus is. And the one who preached in chapter 2 to a huge crowd and saw 3,000 people come to faith 
that same man cares just for one lame beggar. He stops and he listens. He gives him eye attention. He asks for eye attention in return. And then we're going to see that this one deed, this one healing of this one lame beggar has huge ramifications. Chapter 4, verse 4, we're going to see 2,000 people are going to come to faith through this one man's healing. So good works and mercy ministry actually affirm, support, and legitimize the preaching of the gospel. It does not supplant the preaching of the gospel. In many ways, the, the church I grew up in and kind of the context I grew up in, we did a lot of... Um, we did a lot more with deed. I'll just say that. We did a lot of acts of, of kindness and generosity or serving the homeless or making food or whatever and very little explaining of why we wanted to do the things that we did. And that's because Jesus is ultimately the one who changes us. And so our good works have been prepared beforehand, Ephesians chapter 2, and yet we still want to proclaim the gospel. So word and deed are both vital to making Jesus known. Number three, love well those in moral and ecclesiastical proximity. Love well those in moral and ecclesiastical proximity. Ecclesiastical is kind of just a fancy word for who's around you in church. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. So love well those in moral, and you could just write in church proximity. Ecclesiastical proximity. This comes from Augustine's moral proximity principle, which I'll have a, a short quote on the screen. All men are to be loved equally. So I don't know if you wrestle with kind of our question at the beginning. Who are we to love? Who are we to invest in? All men are to be loved equally. But since you cannot do good to all, you are limited. I am limited. You are to pay special regard to those who by the accidents of time or place or circumstance, are brought into closer connection with you. So we have a unique responsibility to those directly around us because of time or place or circumstance. I think about a few different verses kind of spread throughout the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.8 encourages us to, to really love our family to invest and care for our family, or we're worse than an unbeliever. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, encourages us to love our neighbor. And in many ways, our neighbor may expand to the ends of the earth, but, but especially those that we see and we interact with. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we are to, to especially love those of the household of faith. We are to love our church. Another passage is not on the screen, kind of the, the great first Two great commandments, Matthew 22, love God and love our neighbor. Your life is meant to be poured out for others. So get out there, do something, care for people. You only have one life. That is, I mean, if anything has stuck out in Ecclesiastes, it's we have one life, it is fleeting, it is vaporous. So let's invest it. Spend it on other people rather than being self-absorbed and self-focused. So back to our original question, how do you decide where to invest in? Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 35 through 40. Uh, Jesus has this interaction with the disciples 
where essentially he talks about that those who, when you cared for the hungry, when you cared for the thirsty, when you cared for the naked, when you cared for your imprisoned neighbor, you were caring for me. Now, are you responsible for all people in those categories or even other categories? What about all the other groups that we've discussed? We obviously need to feel a burden to carry a level of weight on our shoulders for lots of kind of people and even bring, bring different groups before the Lord in prayer. But invest your life with refugees, the poor, local schools, homeless, blind, deaf, people with cancer, kids with cancer, veterans, orphans, widows, unbelievers, the unborn. Wherever the Lord has called you and given you a passion, push in there. In many ways, you and I individually cannot love all the groups of people that need loving. You can't do it. I can't do it. We are limited, and we are even limited as a church. We only have so much to invest. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have a general care for all people everywhere spread out throughout the globe, but it does mean we're limited, and we need the whole body of Christ to invest. I think about even for us in this church, we are uniquely made up. I think it's 1 Corinthians 12. We were talking about it in Discovering TCGS this morning. We each have a different part to play in the body. Some are the, you know, the fingers or the toes or the ears. And that's true of this church, but it's also true of really the universal church. Different churches can play kind of different parts in the universal church. And we need to be reminded that we are not God. He is the one people need. He can use us mightily in one person's life, in 3,000 people's lives, and we just need to be faithful. So we as a church want to see Greer transformed by the gospel and by Jesus. We want to see many come to true saving faith in the Lord Jesus. We want to see all people cared for. And that essentially begins with you loving your neighbor really well, figuring out who is in moral proximity to you. I love Trevor this morning in Discovering TC just said, do for one person what you wish you could do for all. You cannot serve all people, even probably all people you know, or all people even in your neighborhood, but do for one person, then do for another, and then keep doing, keep investing, keep speaking to the lame beggar. So it doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of things that we care for that are even far away from us. Casey and I, we, we think about our generosity, our money that we want to give away kind of in three buckets. We think about local uh, here in Greer. We think about national um, or really maybe North America. And then we think about international. And that's helpful for us. So we, I've sometimes thought about the Beatles song, Here, There, and Everywhere. So sometimes we think about that with our, with our money or how we're going to invest. But I also, and I think you also, many of us in this room, have a unique relationship with Greer, with Taylors, with Blue Ridge, with Lyman, with Greenville. Relationship that we don't have with other places. Even places we lived a week ago, two weeks ago, two years ago, five years ago, or maybe the place we grew up that we've moved away from. So be open to the prompting of the Spirit, where you are to invest, where you are to help, and have it all be done for the glory and for the name of Jesus Christ so that people may come to know him. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you knowing and being so grateful that you are God. You are the one who rule and reign over all creation. Lord, we are finite and fickle. We are limited. And yet you are infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present. And Lord, you are the one that people need. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit would work mightily to, to meet needs, to meet physical needs, to meet spiritual needs. Lord, we know that even half a mile radius from here, a mile radius from here, how many dozens, how many hundreds, how many thousands of people need you, are struggling in many different ways. And yet, Lord, we also know that we go through trials, hardships for many different reasons. Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful to you, our Lord and our God, that we would preach the name of Christ, that we would meet needs that are in our proximity or in our areas of influence. Lord, we know we are limited. Lord, I pray we'd be intentional to spend time in prayer for where we, where we need to invest our lives. What nonprofit, what local school, what amount of money do we need to send to Bryce and Elizabeth and Hannah and Rebecca or Onid or wherever else you have influenced our hearts to Kenya, to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to, to magnify you, to make you known. And Lord, we are grateful that the Spirit has allowed us to, to know these 10 verses and to invest 30, 40 minutes in, in studying it and seeing that the Spirit's work is meant to point to Jesus Christ, the one who lived a perfect life and was crucified on the cross for our sin, was buried, was raised on the third day, and really, literally, physically appeared and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. Lord, help our hearts to be changed by the good news of the gospel. And I pray that that would be obvious like the lame man. It's so clear to see his change from not being able to walk to being able to walk and leap. And Lord, I pray that in many ways the same would be true of us, that our hearts would be changed continuously, regularly, that we would put off sin and we would put on the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, we're grateful for this night, grateful for this time. We love you.